Hello, everybody, and welcome to In-Depth, presented by the San Antonio Express News. My name is Luis Vasquez, and I'll be your host as we bring in journalists, editorial board members, and columnists to give us an inside perspective into the stories they bring to the Express News each week. Today, we're going to hear a conversation between Express News reporter Peggy O'Hare and long COVID patient Rosario Niaves. Rosario is the subject of Peggy's latest story, a story about a devastating illness that is affecting a large number of patients around the world and one that medicine doesn't fully understand or know how to treat. You can read the full story over at expressnews.com by clicking the link in this episode's description. And now here's the conversation between Peggy O'Hare and Rosario Niaves. Thank you for joining us today, Rosario. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, First, why don't you tell us what long COVID is? Sure. So long COVID is a relatively new illness and it's emerged as a result of the COVID pandemic. In the U.S., it's been given a name by the National Institutes of Health. It's known as um, PASC. It's post-acute sequelae of SARS coronavirus 2. But it actually was it's argued by scholars that it was a patient created disease because in the early part of the pandemic, when most of the patients and the focus was on, or most of the focus, I should say, was on patients that had severe acute cases of COVID and and were hospitalized. Um, There was a large amount of patients that were experiencing symptoms that they had never experienced before, and the focus was not on them. They found each other online through Twitter and other fora, um, like Facebook and Reddit, and um, they concluded that there was something that was connected to the COVID pandemic that they were experiencing, but they didn't know what to call it. Um, And it was a scholar out of Italy who named it long COVID uh, via Twitter and her tweet went viral and, and that's how it got its name. The CDC has uh, uh, um, communicated that long COVID can manifest in several different system, um, symptoms like fatigue, shortness of breath, brain fog, uh, sleep disorders, fevers, gastrointestinal symptoms, anxiety, depression, and it could be debilitating um, as a disease, which, you know, we're going to talk about today, my own experience with it. Yeah. So that's, that's what we're dealing with. Kind of having it, um, it, the way I've likened it to is um, like the early stages of the HIV um, epidemic. It's a new, it's a new disease. It's a new virus, um, and we just don't know enough about it. And so, what we do know um, is what I've shared. But there's still so much more to learn. Sure. Do doctors know what causes long COVID, and is there any cure? There are lots of theories that are circulating around um, the world. Um, There's some really great research out of Africa um, around uh, microclotting. And so um, there are some scholars that believe that and researchers that believe that it is um, cardiovascular in nature. Um, But what we do know also is that there is an autoimmune component. So... um, when we talk about long COVID, we say we can say long COVID and its associated conditions because it's what we know is that it's acting like other viruses or other syndromes. Um, one of those is called mast cell activation syndrome, which is one that I've been diagnosed with, and it's an autoimmune condition. Um, and many patients that are experiencing long COVID are experiencing those types of symptoms um, from that um, that syndrome. Um, so there's still a lot to learn. Um, and I think what's important is that we're trying to support the research that's out there so that we can learn as much as we can about it. Um, we know that there isn't a cure yet, um, but I'd like to stay hopeful. And I I do hope that with all of the attention that's being placed on the disease, that some researchers, researchers somewhere in this world will find a cure soon. So the pandemic, the COVID pandemic arrived in the United States in early 2020. And um, when did you start to feel sick? Uh, What were the signs or uh, changes that you first noticed? I started to feel sick um, in the early part of 2020. 
around January and February of that year, I was feeling just very burnt out um, and fatigued in a way that I hadn't felt before. But I thought it was just work stress or just bur being burnt out from a very hectic 2019. Um, and then in March, I started to have symptoms like a sinus infection, kind of like sinusitis or some other type of sinus infection. And I went to the doctor, my my, my primary care doctor, and they thought that it was um, sinusitis. They gave me um, Sudafed. Uh, they didn't even prescribe antibiotics, um, but just thought that it was something sinus related. Didn't even suspect COVID um, because I think at that time, the virus was still emerging um, as something that was more common. Um, and then in June, I woke up one day and I felt like I was going to just pass out. Um, and I had never felt like that before. Um, I was very dizzy, kind of like a vertigo feeling. And um, also just at one point kind of saw blackness um, and I just thought this is something that is different that's going on. I know that there's something wrong with my body. Um, and I think that was the beginning of having these, um, these types of symptoms. I also went hiking. I was in Northern California and, um, I tried to go hiking at a place that I had been before and I, had gotten out of the car and walked to the trailhead, which was not a very far distance. And I was moving so slowly and I just thought there's something, there's something wrong here. Um, the heat I could tell was like affecting me in a way that it had never been before. I mean, I'm from Texas, you know, so I'm used to heat. Um, but something was wrong. Um, and I didn't even make it past the trailhead. We didn't even go hiking that day. I had to turn around and get back in the car. And once I was back in the air conditioning, I noticed that I felt better. And so that was the first indicator that I also had developed some kind of heat intolerance, um, which was another symptom or, or sign of, um, you know, some of the conditions that I was experiencing. Um, in July, of uh, 2020, I um, I had an episode where I woke up again one day and felt like I was going to pass out. Um, but I also had this kind of like electric feeling like on my like upper thighs that I had never experienced before. And I called 911. And when I was on the phone with them, I noticed on my left elbow that I was developing some kind of like white patch that was just like, I could see it just appearing and I was describing it to the operator saying there's, I don't know what's happening. Um, and they dispatched a, an ambulance and uh, I went to the hospital that day. Um, so those were some of the first symptoms that I started to experience. And it was just really scary um, because I knew that there was something that was wrong that was not anything that I had ever experienced before. As the year 2020 progressed, uh, you began to feel worse. And this is while you were still working in San Jose, California. Um, tell us what other symptoms you started to experience. One of the other symptoms that was notable was just extreme anxiety. I had never experienced anxiety like that before. It seemed like um, just like my emotions just kind of were hard to regulate and just everything just seemed sort of more heightened than um, before. Um, and so like I was experiencing like extreme like social anxiety, especially on like Zoom calls, um, not uh, not right away. But I think like as um, actually like after I left the city of San Jose um, and we haven't talked about it yet, but I was in a graduate program at the University of Chicago. Um, and it was during those like first few months of classes that I noticed that there was something strange again that was going on. You know, I, I, my background is in public relations, so I don't, normally don't have that type of social anxiety around people or even around like presenting in front of others. And it just seemed to be something that like I just couldn't control. Um, I also was having these um, like episodes that the doctors seemed to diagnose or think that they were panic attacks. Um, and that's how they attributed the anxiety. And I knew that that's not what it was um, because I would have these episodes where I 
would have this extremely fast heartbeat. And it felt like I was very lightheaded, like I was going to pass out. And I would go to the hospital. Um, you know, sometimes I um, would drive, um, not in an ambulance, but have somebody drive me to the hospital. And when I got inside, the attack seemed to subside. So I knew that it wasn't just anxiety. It was there was something else going on. And later on, we've discovered that I was having allergic reactions to food or to environmental allergens. And that would explain why once I got in, indoors into an air conditioned facility that the symptoms would stop. So those episodes, they lasted like, I, I mean, I had multiple episodes like that, multiple visits to the ER. And it was very frustrating because when I would get there, the ER physicians would just misdiagnose me or dismiss me as having anxiety and try to prescribe like anti-anxiety medications. And they just were not interested in hearing me, my explanation of, of what I thought was happening in my body. And this was all brought on by long COVID, you came to find out. Yes, yes. It was um, one of the multiple ER visits that I had. There was a very kind doctor who um, followed up. And I think that was part of the hospital's procedure was that they would call you once you were dismissed from the hospital. Um, and so uh, normally when the ER physician would do that, I wouldn't call them back. But I had gone to the ER. Um, he had uh, I remember he had evaluated me, done some light neurological testing just to see if there was like something else that was going on neurologically, um, had thought that it was anxiety. Um, another doctor had had speculated that it was something related to my heart. And I had another episode. So I did call him back in this instance. And he was um, very responsive. You know, this was like after like after hours, like in the evening. And you know, I was just explaining to him what was going on. And I said, I, you know, what, what else do you think it is? Like, can you give me any other leads? Like where, like what other type of specialist should I follow up with? I've already seen a cardiologist. They've already looked at my heart and they've said that everything is okay. And he said, well, you know, you could have mild COVID or you could have a case of that. And I didn't know what he was talking about at that time. And at that point, not, nobody, none of the doctors, not, nobody in the ERs had suspected COVID. And so I just went to the internet and I did my own research and I found that there were other patients that were talking about this. And there were some initial reports um, from the media that were describing that there could be this um, quote unquote mild case of COVID where you're having symptoms that just don't seem to go away, that are just persisting. And, you know, now we know that that's, it's called long COVID. And I think that the name or the term mild is just a complete misnomer because there is nothing mild about having this disease. It has been completely life-changing. You made 16 hospital emergency room visits and you were hospitalized twice over a two and a half year period. Uh, and as you mentioned, you encountered many doctors along your journey who didn't believe you were really sick or who were dismissive of the physical symptoms, uh, labeling them anxiety or panic attacks. What was that like to experience as a patient? It was a very frustrating experience and confusing, I think is how I would describe it, because I couldn't tell right away why I was not being taken seriously. And I guess I was just used to being treated in a certain professional manner based on my career and my profession, um, where I interacted with dozens of people in a day. I was a you know, very senior executive at a large municipal government, um, used to uh, making decisions and um, making recommendations and those recommendations being taken seriously. And, and I, you know, I am a very serious kind of person and that was a very serious profession. So when dealing with this type of serious medical issue, it wasn't apparent to me why these doctors were not treating it with the same significance that I thought it deserved. 
I kept getting dismissed as like, you're in distress. And while that may have been the case, I still think that it was important to be, to rule out like other factors to explain like what was going on. And there were some, there were some ER physicians that took that approach and they said, you know, we don't want to already immediately go to its anxiety what we want to do is first like rule out other things to de- to determine if there's something else going on and if not um, if we don't find anything then you know we can look at anxiety or other type of like mental conditions but not all of the ER physicians did that uh, I did notice that the doctors that seemed to take me more seriously were people of color they were um, often female um, And I think it was like a a few of those types of interactions where I realized like, I think there are other things that are going on here. Like, I think there is some racism. I think there is sexism that's taking place. There are these biases that are playing into what's these interactions. Um, And I didn't, I almost like didn't want to believe that um, because I think that was just kind of, hurtful, I think. And I was already going through so much. Um, so I think the emotions around that experience were like anger and just like complete frustration. Um, but like, all you know, being a woman of color, like I am, you know, I know what those types of interactions and that type of treatment feels like. And I know that what's important is to just keep going and keep you know, and to trust yourself and just keep persisting through those interactions rather than to like, let it stop you because then you're like never going to get anything done. So, um, I like when, when dealing with those physicians, what I did was just like, just find another doctor, um, and find somebody just kept trying to find somebody that wouldn't believe me that would treat me. And I went through a lot of doctors. One of the saddest parts of your story is that you suffered a miscarriage in 2020 while going through all of this. And you said that you believe uh, that the long COVID illness caused you to lose your baby. Uh, Can you talk a little about that experience and how that affected you? Yeah, I I think... um the having uh, finding out that I was pregnant was a big surprise um, in the early part of the pandemic. Um, it was not something that I was planning. And so um, I had a lot of like mixed emotions around it. But I also was so busy <laughs> with um, what I was experiencing at work in dealing with the, um, or handling the, the COVID pandemic crisis that it almost felt like I didn't even have time to really process any of the emotions that were around it. I only knew that I was pregnant for two weeks. And, um, in those two weeks we were at the city, we were dealing with the pandemic and also, um, a lot of the racial injustice um, climate um, that was surrounding, especially the police force. And my attention was like really focused on um, handling, you know, those different um, situations. So I don't think I really processed any of that um, until much later, like I would say, like in the fall of 2020. The other like confusing part about all of that was that it was the pregnancy and the miscarriage were the beginning of my long COVID symptoms, like my more severe ones. And so um, I think it cloud, like the pregnancy sort of clouded the long, like those early symptoms, those early stages of long COVID and also the emergency room physicians care and treatment of me because I think there was confusion about um, or attention more was paid toward um, the mis- the baby and the miscarriage rather than uh, my long COVID symptoms. So I have a lot of mixed feelings around it. It I think it just makes the situation just that much more sad because not only was I dealing with like the grief of my identity and my myself as a healthy person, but I also had to deal with the 
loss of a child and I may never have a child again. I may never be pregnant again. And so those two events will always be kind of tied together um, for me. And and I think that, that um, the whole experience was just very traumatic. Um, and it was um, very isolating because I had to to go through some of those emergency room visits um, in looking at the health of the baby. I had to go through all of that alone because in the early part of the pandemic, we could not have like our partners in the rooms and the hospitals. Um, only one person was allowed at the time. So all of it was just traumatizing. Um, and I, I don't think I'm ever, I don't think I'm ever really going to get past that. Um, but I think, um, what we do is, you know, we just, we just have to keep moving forward. So you moved back home to San Antonio from San Jose to be near your family again. And you grew up here. Uh, you moved back home to uh, have the support of your family, uh, the emotional support, and um, and just have people near you. Uh, and I know last summer, the summer of 2021, was the worst time for you uh, throughout this illness. At one point last summer, you were hospitalized uh, in San Antonio for almost three weeks. Can you talk about what you went through last summer and what led to your hospitalization? Yes, last summer was especially difficult. Um, we, I guess seasonally, we had this very rainy um, summer, which is, I think most people who are from Texas know that that's highly unusual for us to have rain. Um, and it's been complete opposite of what we're going through right now with these extreme temperatures. Um, and so I... I'm not sure why, you know, that happened. Um, I guess it's climate change, but um, we um, we were experiencing so much rain that what was happening is that the mold spores were had more opportunity to grow. And if you're from Texas, you also know that we have really bad allergies in in Texas, especially in San Antonio. Um, and one of those allergens that um, we are the climate for is mold. And it turns out that I am highly allergic to mold. Um, and with the long COVID um, disease, and then also as a result of the COVID vaccine, um, which I had gotten in April, March and April of 2021, um, I became that much more allergic to environmental allergens like mold. Um, which I didn't know until all of this was happening. Um, so there were, um, there was probably like a pattern of a good month of weather where the mold spores were so, the mold spore count was so high in San Antonio that um, I started to have much, a much more difficult time breathing. Um, so what that looks like for me is that my breathing becomes very labored. Um, I, um, I also found it to be a lot more fatiguing. It feels like an elephant is like sitting on my chest. That's, that's what it felt like. And it feels like even today, because the mold is very high today. Um, and I also noticed that like, I became a lot more like fearful and I think it's because my, the blood and the oxygen are like not getting to my head. And so it's creating like this also this kind of like mood imbalance as well. Um, so I was, I was dealing with all of that in 2021 and, um, and it was, it was crippling is like, I think is how I would describe it. And there was this one, one day where, um, I, I had already been inside for indoors for, you know, many, many months, like as we all were kind of quarantining. Um, I had been inside for months and my family had planned a vacation to um, Corpus Christi and they wanted me to go and I hadn't spent much time with my family. So I thought, uh, you know, it'd be great if I try to make this trip. And so I went and I was not in the car for like more than 20, 25 minutes when suddenly I started to have this like throat closing sensation where it, I mean, it really felt like my throat was closing. I could not breathe and my heart rate started to just escalate. 
And by this time, you know, I have um, some tools and devices with me that can kind of give me these readings. Um, and so my heart rate was in the one high 140s, which is very high. Um, your a normal heart rate is 60 to 100 beats per minute. Um, and I knew that there was something wrong and it felt like... Um, like some kind of allergic reaction, although I hadn't eaten anything, so I didn't know what was going on. Um, fortunately, my brother-in-law had Benadryl in the car, and um, he suggested that I, you know, I take it. So I took one um, that didn't do anything. I took two um, that helped, and I called my allergist, and he said, um, "Yeah, I think you're having some kind of allergic reaction," and we checked the um, the the account in San Antonio, you can um, look at that online and it showed that it was very high. And so we, that's when I kind of put two and two together that what's happening is that I'm having these allergic reactions and that whatever allergies I was experiencing already has escalated since having the vaccine. And it's caused this like more extreme reaction, autoimmune reaction to these allergens. Um, it, as the the situation just kind of escalated from there, like the more rain that we got. And um, I found myself one week where the the weather prediction was rain every day. Um, I, I found that as that week progressed, my symptoms just got worse. Um, and I started to have sort of... Um, sort of to be like debilitated physically by what was going on. So that fatigue and, and my body trying to like fight what was happening um, in the environment um, just led me to just be almost like paralyzed. And one day um, shortly after 4th of July, I found that I could not move my body. I um, was, it was like my brain was working and it was sending the signal to my body to move and get up from the sofa, but I couldn't physically move it. And I called 911 and uh, they, they dispatched a unit. And um, I had to actually like argue my way to get to the hospital that I had desired to go to because I had already been to several in San Antonio and I had wanted to go to this particular hospital and I had to kind of argue with the paramedic to take me to that one. And they did. And I ended up being in the hospital for three weeks. And that was the first time that you really felt that doctors were taking it seriously. Yes. Yeah. It seemed like hospitalization was like the game changer or like the inflection point in this whole journey um, to get doctors to take me seriously and to get the quality of care that I knew I deserved and I knew I needed. Um, and they were very helpful um, at, uh, it was at uh, Methodist Hospital that I was at. Um, the the hospitalist on call had suspected that what was happening was something akin to multiple sclerosis. Um, and so I remember just being really sad um, that day and just kind of fearing the worst, like thinking like, okay, worst case scenario, like it, it is this, um, this illness and, and okay, this is, this is what's happening. And as hard was, as that was to digest, it was also sort of a relief because at least I had some kind of diagnosis. At least there was some explanation for what was going on because up to this point, the, the disease that I was experiencing and the symptoms that I was having were just so mysterious and inexplicable. It was just really frustrating. Um, and a neurologist, um, he, he ordered some tests and um, he said, okay, we, we are gonna look to see if, if there is like MS or some other type of explanation for this. Um, they ordered an MRI, a CT scan, um, a lumbar puncture, which is like a spinal tap, which is a very kind of um, delicate procedure. Um, and these are all tests that could determine whether there was some type of neurological disorder that was happening, like Parkinson's disease or Guillain-Barr or MS. And um, they, and, and it, it did, it felt good to have a neurologist who was dedicated to trying to find out what was going on. And I remember he looked me in the eye, I was, you know, laying there in the, um, in the unit before I had um, been admitted to the hospital. And he said, you know, we, we believe you, we believe you. 
um, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to help you. And that just, it, it just meant so much because, and, and it was weird because I didn't prompt that. I don't know what prompted him to say that. And all I could think of was that maybe there were other people that he had seen who had said that people were not believing them and that he had been so accustomed to helping those people that he knew that I was just one of those individuals, um, which is just really, you know, just, um, very disappointing. I think, um, if there are others who are going through what I went through, um, to know that you're not being believed, um, and that it's so common that this neurologist, you know, at this hospital that sees hundreds of patients a day, um, has to say that and has to reassure you. Um, but those words meant so much to me at that time. And it wasn't long after that, that you got the official diagnosis of long COVID. Yes, it was actually that same week. Um, so I had finally gotten into San Antonio's post-COVID clinic, which is at UT Health. And um, that took um, many, many months, um, probably about seven or so months um, to get into the to the clinic and um, to be able to get, um, you know, there's like a waiting period to get in to see the doctor. Um, so by, by that time, it was July of 2021. And I actually had my first appointment with the um, post-COVID clinic doctor um, just a few days before being admitted to that hospital. Um, I don't think that we could have predicted that that would have happened, the paralysis or debility episode, um, and or otherwise I would have you know, told the doctor that. But um, in that first uh, meeting with the doctor, it was via telehealth. Um, she, all, all I had to do was sort of describe what was going on, and she could see just in, in the background, um, what I was dealing with. I mean, at that point I was bed bound. My sister and my mother were there to take care of me. Um, I couldn't even get up to, to get my own meals. I, I was not showering. Um, I could not shower by myself or even, um, just, you know, get in and out of the bathtub. Um, and so I was, I mean, I was completely reliant on other people and just telling her those symptoms and what I was experiencing. Um, and what I had experienced up until that point, um, she knew what she was dealing with and and she diagnosed me with post-COVID syndrome. What was it like to finally receive confirmation from a doctor that this was indeed a, a physical illness you'd been suffering from all this time? Um, I want to say that I was, it was this moment of like this gratifying moment, but it was, it was probably less climactic than that. I think at that point I knew what it was and I didn't really need anyone to tell me what it was. I, I think at, at that point, my job was convincing the doctors that this is what it was um, with evidence as much as possible. Um, but I was, I mean, I, I, um, I was grateful to finally have something like on my record because by that time, I kind of learned how the healthcare system worked and how that is so important. It's like you need one doctor to give you the diagnosis for the other doctor to take you seriously, you know, for the specialist to take you seriously. So I knew that that diagnosis was going to be critical to getting the type of care I needed from the other specialist. Um, and, and Dr. Um, Verdusco Gutierrez was that doctor. Um, she heads up UT Health's post-COVID clinic. Um, and she was um, uh, very um, supportive, I think, and understanding. And so that felt like I finally had been seen. Um, like I finally had gone from like um, black and white to color. Um, and it... Um, it's made all the difference um, because now I am getting the attention and the quality of care that I need. What does the public need to know and understand about long COVID? Um, is everyone who had a case of COVID-19 vulnerable to catching this illness? Uh, for instance, can you develop long COVID if your COVID case was mild or asymptomatic? Can you get long COVID if you're fully vaccinated and boosted? Yes. I think that what's important for the public to know is that long COVID is more common than we think. 
And it's it's a little disappointing because the CDC just announced that we don't need to quarantine anymore, which I think is very disappointing because I think that is still um, necessary. You know, we also have reports that say that uh, or uh, experts that speculate that everyone has had COVID by now. And I don't think that that's true. What's I think what's important to know is that you can get long COVID symptoms and this illness whether or not you've been vaccinated. And so that doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. I think that what we've learned about vaccinations is that uh, it can save your life. You know, it can make your case um, not so severe where you're going to need to be intubated or something like that. Um, So you should still get vaccinated, but you can still also get long COVID. Um, You can get long COVID if you've had a very mild, um, I don't want to say mild, but a case of COVID where um, you had the the, um, typical two weeks of the disease and um, or of the virus. And, you know, after two weeks, you've tested um, negative and have gotten better. You can start to see that symptoms emerge. And and I've found that um, just from family and friends, as I've been advocating about long COVID and talking about it, um, people have told me about their experiences post-COVID. Um, one of um, those friends um, recently just said, you know, I... Um, I just noticed that I am just a lot more tired than normal, like than I have ever been. It's like no matter how much sleep I get, I still am very fatigued. And he's never had that before. So that is an example of a long COVID symptom. So I think it's really important to know that you should still be taking the proper precautions that you would have um, to try not to get an acute case of COVID. What we also are finding out is that long COVID is more common in women than men. Um, some of the research studies are showing that we, that men are more likely to get um, uh, the acute cases and women are more likely to have this more long term um, version of COVID-19. Um, those studies, they're still emerging. I think they're, you know, we're, we're at, um, in academia and scholars um, and in the research community are still trying to learn what we can about it. But I have seen some studies that have shown that. Um, so I think that that's really important to know. And also, I know that early, um, early on when long COVID was being covered by the media, um, there were reports that it was also prevalent in middle-aged women. So it's not surprising. I'm a woman of middle age that has this. Um, we also have heard reports that it's more like healthy individuals, people who were previously healthy that had it. Um, we've heard uh, people who are more type A um, type of personalities have gotten it. So I think we're still going to see, you know, time is going to tell whether, you know, some of these theories are true or not. But I think it's very important to know that it can happen to you and um, it's not something that you should take lightly. If you are experiencing these symptoms, get, see a doctor because this, these symptoms can persist and they can um, turn um, you know, into a more severe case of COVID than you had ever previously imagined. The American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation estimates that 18 million to 27 million Americans nationwide suffer from long COVID. In Bear County alone, the number is estimated at 124,000 to 186,000 people battling this illness. Those are really high numbers, and those numbers are expected to go up as more time passes. How do you think doctors and the healthcare profession? can best address this tidal wave of long COVID patients? Uh, how can they be prepared to provide the quality of health care that these patients are going to need? Well I, well, I think we're already seeing that post-COVID clinics are emerging across the country. Um, they started to appear in 2020, um, some in uh, like Mount Sinai, like in some of these um, more established like research areas. Um, like in New York uh, or in California or on the coast. Um, and it's been great to see that th- that there has been attention that's been paid um, in the form of these clinics. But we're also seeing that there's some obstacles. I think that that type of um, care is 
requiring or um, is has presented challenges to um, patients who are who are suffering. Um, one of those obstacles is that many of these clinics are requiring a positive test result, and many of patients like myself either were never tested, were not eligible for testing, or they. Um, tested negative, which is another kind of like mysterious phenomenon that we, we don't understand, like, you know, why some long COVID patients are testing negative for the virus and for antibodies, even when they're, the symptoms are there. Um, so I, I think that, um, we need to see more of these post COVID clinics, um, in all areas of the U.S., um, in all regions, um, rural and urban, because I think that there are some cases where people who are in rural areas have to drive to get the care that they need, and that's very limiting for somebody who's suffering with the symptoms. Um, we, I think we also need to see a more coordinated effort, um, like more of a one-stop shop, shopping for the patients, um, I know I experienced that uh, when, you know, I was more uh, extremely debilitated, like at the beginning of this disease, where it's very difficult to just even get out of bed. Some people are very are bed bound, like I described. Some people are are housebound. Um, transportation is an issue, um, the, and just the fatigue and dealing with the symptoms that we are dealing with um, can be very limiting. So, as much coordinated care, so that that relieves the patient from having to like go to specialist after specialist, um, that would be helpful. Um, it also, I think that type of um, coordination also helps the patient because they don't have to explain their narrative to every specialist over and over again and have to sort of make the case for what they're experiencing. Um, and I think that type of dynamic is what contributes to like the experience that I had experienced, which I think in popular culture, it's called like medical gaslighting is, is what we've heard. Um, in academia, it's, it could be known as, um, epistemic injustice, um, where you know, the patient knows what's happening inside their body and the physician or the provider is not believing them. Um, and so that type of more coordinated care, um, I think helps to, um, to mitigate, you know, that type of, um, narrative being misunderstood. And I think that that's really important in the person getting the care that they need from the physician. Um, and so we need to see a lot more of that. Um, I think also primary care doctors have like a huge role here. Um, they're the, they're the first line of, um, provider that the patient usually has to see. And if they don't believe the patient, then it's like the patient is not going to get to the specialist that they need. They're not going to get the care that they need. So it's really important that the primary care doctor is educated about the symptoms, knows um, what to do, maybe has a reference for a post-COVID clinic that they can send somebody in their area. Um, so we're we're really relying on, on primary care physicians to stay up to date about what's going on with this and to start believing patients. Um, and I think last, illness legitimacy is really critical here. Um, long COVID can be a very traumatic experience. And if, if as patients were left to deal with this all on our own, then that it could be just much more traumatizing and that can lead to other um, conditions like post-traumatic stress dis um, disorder. Um, and so we're seeing that it's not just physicians that don't believe patients, but it's also like family and friends, which like I experienced that. And you and I have talked about that um, where even just, you know, friends and family don't believe you. And um, if you're left to deal with this all on your own, then you're also dealing with the emotional like tax of all of this. And that's just overwhelming for the patient who's already suffering with so much physically. Sure. Uh, what do you think the federal government um, and elected officials such as those in Congress can do to help patients suffering from long COVID? Uh, what, what help do those patients need? I think the number one thing that we need is funding for research. Um, we need to be dedicated and committed to finding a cure for this disease. Just like we are committed to finding a cure for cancer, um, I hope that 
this area of research becomes sort of sexy to the to the community um, that is researching it, because if it doesn't, then what's going to happen is what we see in cases like other invisible illnesses like myalgic encephalomyelitis, if I'm saying that correctly, um, it's also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, um, which is one of these areas of research that's just under-researched, underfunded, because it's so complex that the research community and the, um, you know, and our funders and pharmaceutical industry, other um, others who are responsible for this burden, they just turn the other way because it doesn't seem to be as sexy as some other illnesses. Um, and so I'm hoping that because there are so many people that are suffering it, and you read the numbers, um, uh, about 200,000 in Bear County alone, that we do see that there is some funding and some attention that's paid to this disease. Um, I think the other thing that the federal government could do is look at like all of the social support services and programs that people who are suffering with long COVID need, um, you know, we're seeing that people are becoming homeless, for instance, because of this illness, um, that it, be, because it is so long, I mean, even like in my own case where, you know, it's been two years that I've been dealing with this and I haven't even been able to get back to work. Um, we're seeing that, you know, people are going through their savings. Spouses are, are abandoning their partners. People are losing their homes. They're losing their jobs. Um, so we really need some help from the federal, state, local governments to look at what programs we can um create or uh, adapt to meet these long haulers needs. Um, I think like the social security disability um, program is one of those. Um, I know that the waiting list is very long um, that many people get turned away. And so is there something that we can do to update that program or put more people on it so that people aren't having to wait so long? Um, do we need to fund that in a better or different way? Um, that's, you know, one example. Um, for me, from my own experience, like housing and transportation um, are one of, or two of those areas that are proving to be challenging for me. Um, I don't qualify for any type of assistance based on my previous um, career history. And so um, it's, it's sad that, um, you know, there's, there are no programs that are available to help me when I'm somebody who's dealing with this illness. Um, so I think it's, it's affecting, of course, like the most vulnerable groups, but it's also affecting people that were contributing to the labor workforce. Um, and it's both groups that need help. It's it's all of the above that, that needs help from the government right now. So um, I think we need to see some more attention toward it. And I think what we've seen so far from especially the the Biden administration is, is support for it in the way of... Um, a, a research effort um, through the National Institutes of Health called Recover. It's it's um, a, a trial that's currently underway to understand the disease. Um, but we also need to see that same type of commitment right now for treating the disease and finding a cure for the de de disease. We, we don't have time to wait. Um, people's lives are being um, changed uh, every day by it. And the longer that we take, um, the more people are suffering and, and um, the more people that we're seeing actually are dying. Um, and we haven't talked about the mental health aspect of it, but I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, the good news is that you've been seeing an improvement in your health physically uh, since you started a new medication in March of this year. Uh, you're but you're still trying to recover and get your full strength back. Um, tell us how your life has changed since you started taking this new medication. What are some things you can do now that you couldn't do before? It's been phenomenal. Um, I'm so happy to like have even be able to be here today. Um, is a it's just it's a huge sign of progress. Um, so the the long COVID clinic doctor Dr. Verdusco Gutierrez um, prescribed. Um, what is known as a, a micro dose or low dose of naltrexone, uh, which is a medication that's typically used for um, 
alcohol disorders um, and uh, drug addiction. And for some reason, it has these other off-label uses um, that have been proven to reduce inflammation in the body, which I think is what we're seeing with long COVID is that the body is sort of experiencing a, um, a, a high amount of inflammation. Um, and so that's something that I started in March and it's proven to be just a, a game changer for me. I've, I think I've described it to you as like, it's like turning on a light switch. Like I just went from being completely fatigued and having lots of foggy kind of brain fog um, feeling to being able to um, be more focused, feel more like myself, have energy to get through the day um, and not have to be resting and, you know, napping so much. Um, and so this spring and the summer have just been completely different than last year. Um, and then, and in 2020, um, I've been able to like get outside. Um, I went to Confluence Park for the first time, um, about a month ago. Um, I just, uh, went to Austin for a concert, which was my reward to myself for getting through this horrible parts of this, um, of this disease. Um, and I, it was, um, it was fun. I, I was able to like, you know, be, um, be out and about. Um, I was able to deal with the lights and the sound, which normally, um, would have been, um, really that they would have affected me, um, very negatively. Um, and I would have been very sensitive to at the beginning of this illness. Um, so those are some signs of progress. Um, let's see, I've been to North Star Mall. I've been to the Pearl. Um, I'm able to eat out now. I'm still eating, the same type of foods that um, I think we we talk about or you, you've described in the article, um, but I'm actually able to eat them cooked by somebody else, which is good. Um, and so it's just been it's been um, it's made me just so much more happy um, and given me hope. I think um, to know that I can still have some type of life um, and quality of life. It may not look like what it was before. It may not ever look like that again, but it's something that um, I can still look forward to. That's fantastic. And what's really impressive about your story is that you somehow found the strength uh, to push through all the suffering and get a master's degree from the University of Chicago while you were sick. Uh, you just got an A on your thesis, and you are about to graduate on August 19th. How did you manage to do that? I mean, was it difficult? It was extremely difficult. <laughs> um, I thought about that, uh, you know, before I came here today. And I, I think, um, you know, if there's one thing that I believe in, I it's um, I believe in myself. I believe in myself because of the track record that I've come to know, um, over the last, you know, 20 or so years and, and, you know, even longer than that, um, in my abilities, um, because I've been through difficult circumstances before I've overcome them. And through this trial, I had to just kind of go back to my toolkit of how did I survive those difficult times before? And what do I need to do to get through this? Um, and I think like to actually get through the program, it took that type of, mindset to know that I can do this, to believe in myself that I can do this and that type of commitment. Um, I think that was, that was the first essential part of it. And I think the second one was just, um, breaking the program down into small chunks. And I think that's how you get through anything that's really difficult. It's, um, breaking it down by quarter. It was, you know, three quarters, um, by uh, course by course, by assignment by assignment, week by week, um, test by test. And um, when I would get tired, I would rest. When I would want to give up, I would remind myself of the goal that I had set. Um, and I would allow myself to rest. Or, you know, I would talk to friends or family for support. But I knew that I couldn't give up because it was something that I had already, I had already planned. I knew that it was something that I was committed to and I knew it was something that I could achieve. I just knew that it was going to take longer. It was going to be slower and it was definitely not going to look like anything like how I used to perform before. 
And I just had to give myself grace about that. I had to just, um, just try my best. And there were, there were times where like I needed more time on an assignment or I ran out of time. Like even with my thesis, I felt like I could have done more, you know, in my, my analysis, or I could have spent more time in a certain area, but I just ran out of time. And that running out of time is just because I can't function at the same ability necessarily that I could before. Maybe I can do things the way that I used to. They're just going to take a lot longer or I'm going to have to go a different route. So, um, you know, I just, I just did that. And I think what was important was that I just, you know, just keep going and just do as much as I can do the best that I can. Um, and you know, one day I looked up and it was done and I was, and I I was, um, through with it all. And I'm so glad that I did it. Um, I was really uncertain about whether to continue with the program. When I found out that I was sick, I had a, a lot of, um, anxiety about whether, or not I should do it because I knew that I was already putting through my, my body through so much. Um, but I think looking back, it's the, the program is what actually helped me get through the illness. It gave me something to look forward to. It gave me a distraction to focus on. Um, and, and it also turned out to be something productive. You know, my thesis research is about long COVID. So it was my way to contribute to, um, helping to fight this illness. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your thesis. Yeah, so um, the thesis focuses on um, women um, and their experiences with long COVID, which is not surprising because I'm one of those women. Um, but it, um, it's it's called um, it's not anxiety, um, gendered bodies, and cont- contested illness in um, in COVID nineteen long haulers. Um, and what it's looking at is. Um, women ages 25 to 49 who are living living with the disease for longer than six months and their experiences navigating the healthcare system and searching for what we call illness legitimacy and how does that search affect their illness experiences. Um, I was really inspired by um, a medical anthropologist um, named Arthur Kleinman, who, who wrote a book called The Illness Narratives. And he um, he worked at Harvard Medical School and um, has uh, studied um, people who um, are sick. And I learned a lot about just like illness overall and just like how it's a journey and um, how chronic illness can be very different than like a more acute illness um, like cancer, because chronic is something that can't really necessarily be be solved or be fixed. Um, and, um, you know, that book kind of inspired me to to think about the illness journey and the different parts of it. And one of those parts is explaining your narrative, like trying to make sense and create meaning out of what you're going through. Um, and knowing that these women were going through that, I wondered how does it feel to be disbelieved or, or not believed and and sort of made to feel invisible? Like how can that actually affect your ability to heal? Because it has to have some kind of impact on you because I knew that that's what I was experiencing. Um, and I did, I found that, um, I, you know, in these 15 women that I spoke with, I spent some time talking to them over zoom, listening to their, um, illness journeys. Um, I found that they were experiencing something very similar to what I was. And I think one of the more shocking parts of it was, um, learning that the women of color, especially black women were experiencing some just overt discrimination and bias from the doctors and the horror stories that I heard, um, just, you know, I, I, um, I just, it makes me so sad to, to think that like they were going through something like that. Um, you know, one of the, the women shared that, um, she was actually escorted out by security out of the hospital just for going to seek care. Like she just went there because she was having some severe COVID symptoms. And they said to her and her friend, like, I don't know why you brought, they brought you here. You can't be here. You need to go home. And the security made sure that she left the hospital. 
that type of dynamic like should not happen anywhere in the U.S. I think everybody is entitled to getting some kind of care. Um, and just to see that there were some differences in the treatment of um, the people by race, you know, was just really saddening. Um, or um, Yeah, it, was, it made me very sad. Um, and so I... Um, I'm glad that, you know, that I, I was able to look at this phenomenon, like through my research. Um, and I hope that I can share it with other scholars, um, in the, who are interested in this qualitative study, um, because it shows and it demonstrates that there, um, not only, you know, is long COVID, uh, a real disease, um, not only is it, um, something that is uh, happening to women, but it's also just one of these other invisible illnesses and one of these other instances where women are being made to seem like their experiences are psychological and they're being dismissed as psychological rather than being um, treated. And what that's doing is it's just obfuscating the real impacts of the disease, which I found in my study were um, the racial injustice, the effects on their b ability to be moms at home and to parent effectively, and especially effects on their work. Um, th these women are facing real problems, and instead of being helped, they're just being dismissed by providers or by the medical community. So now that you've finished graduate school, what are your future plans? Um, so I was planning before graduate or before COVID and before this program to uh, pursue a doctoral degree in sociology or anthropology. Um, I thought I think that like that little light uh, kind of dimmed um, when I got this disease, um, but I think it's becoming brighter again um, as I've been able to um, kind of come out of it and see that there is still a chance of of life for me. Um, so I'm um, deciding whether to pursue um, or to apply to doctoral programs in the fall, which was um, originally my plan in 2021. I still want to get married. I still want to have like a, a, a loving relationship. I still want to um, own a home. I want to get back to traveling and I definitely want to get back to work and being able to contribute and to, to live my purpose. Um, I, I think one of my big dreams is to write a book and I think I've been searching for what to write about and I think that this is a very good topic. Definitely. You know, there are so many other long COVID patients out there who may be listening to this. Uh, you, you mentioned the mental health aspect, uh, people who are really suffering physically and mentally, who may not even have a diagnosis yet, uh, people who don't have any support system or who don't have doctors who believe them. And, and they might feel very alone while going through long COVID. Uh, and what would you say to those patients in that situation? Yeah, I think that we are seeing that, um, you know, as the symptoms start to emerge, it's it becomes very evident that your life is no longer going to be the same. And it's hard not to think about what your life was like before you got sick and to know that you're so helpless against, you know, what's going on and what's happening to you. Um, you know, I think it 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 can feel very isolating, um, but it, it can also feel like there's no hope. There's no end in sight to this suffering and there's no hope. Um, I know I felt that way when I was um, in my worst symptoms. And I know that there have been uh, many people that have been committing suicide um, because it, it looks like, you know, no help is on the way. What I would say to those patients is to um, to not give up if you can, um, not give up because um, it can it can get better. As we know, as we learn about the disease, we're seeing that there are some common symptoms like um, the brain fog is a is a symptom of some type of neuroinflammation in the brain, or um, some of the vascular issues are a sign of um, cardiovascular problems, like possibly this microclotting theory, out of South Africa. There are treatments that are coming. There are treatments that we can try. So don't give up. Try to try. You know, be willing to try the treatments. Be willing to um, get outside of your comfort zone. Um, 
be okay with, you know, trying different therapies or taking medication, even if you've never done that before. Um, I went through that and, um, and it's okay to use the tools that are available to you. You're not weak for doing that. You're just human. And, um, you know, everybody deserves a chance to, uh, you know, to live and to survive. Um, and, you know, and, and there, I do believe that there is hope on the way. So don't give up. Um, I also would say that it's really important to advocate for yourself um, with the doctors. If you're finding that doctors don't believe you, find another doctor. You can keep going. Um, don't um, don't let one or two doctors, you know, stop you from what you know your body's experiencing. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Um, and um, I just know that there are millions of other people who are experiencing the same thing as you are. So find them. They're on all kinds of social media. They're on Twitter. They're on TikTok. They're on Snap. They're on Instagram. They're everywhere. Um, so just find support in in those other people because they're the only ones who are going to really understand what you're going through. They're the only ones who are going to understand how hard this is um, and what makes it hard, which is that it's new. It's so new. Um, you know, it's not like this existing disease like HIV or cancer that you that we know about and that there has been attention for decades toward. This is something that what you know we we can know as um, collective suffering and so you don't have to suffer on your own you know you can um, find solace in other people you can find comfort in others Um, so you don't do it alone you know try to find those people um, to help you get through it very good well thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story thank you peggy thanks for having me 